Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. David Lally here, producer of the show, and I'd like to congratulate Brian on the success of his new book, The Emigrant Edge. It's now a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Amazon bestseller. So if you haven't gotten a copy yet, do yourself a favor, get down to your local or online bookseller. In the meantime, here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. And today is our latest installment of Brian's Bookshelf, where I feature the books that influence me and help me succeed and achieve. Today we're going back in time to the late 1800s to a man who had huge influence in America by the name of Russell Conwell. Now, you may not recognize that name today, but you may well have heard of a little book that came from a speech he gave over 6,150 times called Acres of Diamonds. Conwell gave this speech on success for over 30 years. Russell Conwell was a great man. He was a soldier in the Civil War who came up through the ranks and ultimately had a powerful meeting with Abraham Lincoln just days before he passed. And he chronicles the impression that Lincoln made on him in part of the Acres of Diamonds. He built the largest church in Philadelphia, starting with 57 cents. The church he was leading was starting a fundraiser, and a little girl by the name of Hattie Mae Wyatt was a nine-year-old girl who had saved 57 cents to help fund a new church. She got diphtheria and died. So Russell Conwell, as he shared her story, sold each one of the pennies she had saved for $300, And the folks who bought those pennies actually gave them back to the church to be resold again. Eventually, he turned those 57 cents into building the largest Protestant church in America. What's fabulous about reading Acres of Diamonds today is how applicable it is. The book itself is a transcript of a speech he gave to an audience in Philadelphia. That could be anywhere today. His audience believed that the time to make it big and be successful had passed. Does that sound familiar? Many in his audience believed you couldn't make it big in Philadelphia and that you had to move to New York. The premise of Acres of Diamonds is stories and allegories of how our success and future riches are right underneath our nose. The biggest opportunities we'll ever have in our life we actually take for granted and don't see them as opportunities. That the things we complain about with regards to our current circumstances when seen with a different perspective, will provide our greatest breakthrough. Everything we need is right in front of us. It's what we already know, and in many cases, it's right beneath our feet. Now, the language in the book is a 100 years old, and it's presented to an audience with sensibilities in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So you're going to have to translate that a little bit. But ultimately, these timeless principles are just as true today as when Mr. Conwell first presented them. So tune in and enjoy excerpts from one of my favorite books, Acres of Diamonds, by Russell Conwell. I am astonished that so many people should care to hear this story over again. Indeed, this lecture has become a study in psychology. It often breaks all rules of oratory departs from the precepts of rhetoric, and yet remains the most popular of any lecture I have delivered in the 57 years of my public life. 
I have sometimes studied for a year upon a lecture and made careful research and then presented the lecture just once, never delivered it again. I put too much work on it. But this had no work on it, thrown together perfectly at random, spoken offhand without any special preparation. And it succeeds when the thing we study, work over, adjust to a plan, is an entire failure. The acres of diamonds, which I have mentioned through so many years, are to be found in this city, and you are to find them. Many have found them, and what man has done, man can do. I could not find anything better to illustrate my thought than a story I have told over and over again, and which is now found in books in nearly every library. In 1870, we went down the Tigris River. We hired a guide at Baghdad to show us Persopolis, Nineveh, and Babylon, and the ancient countries of Assyria as far as the Arabian Gulf. He was well acquainted with the land, but he was one of those guides who loved to entertain their patrons. He was like a barber that tells you many stories in order to keep your mind off the scratching and the scraping. He told so many stories that I grew tired of his telling them, and I refused to listen. Looked away when he commenced. That made the guide quite angry. I remember that towards the evening he took his Turkish cap off his head and swung it around in the air. The gesture I did not understand, and I did not dare look at him for fear I should become the victim of another story. I did look, and the instant I turned my eyes upon that worthy guide, he was off again. Said he, I will tell you a story now, which I reserve for my particular friends. So then, counting myself a particular friend, I listened, and I have always been glad that I did. He said there once lived, not far from the river Indus, an ancient Persian by the name of Ali Hafed. He said that Ali Hafed owned a very large farm with orchards, grain fields, and gardens. He was a contented and wealthy man. Contented because he was wealthy, and wealthy because he was contented. One day there visited this old farmer, one of those ancient Buddhist priests, and he sat down by Ali Hafed's fire and told the old farmer how this world of ours was made. He said that this world was once a mere bank of fog, which is scientifically true. And he said that the Almighty thrust his finger into the bank of fog and then began slowly to move his finger around and gradually to increase the speed of his finger until at last it whirled that bank of fog into a solid ball of fire. And it went rolling through the universe, burning its way through other cosmic banks of fog, until it condensed the moisture without and fell in floods of rain upon the heated surface and cooled the outward crust. Then the internal flames burst through the cooling crust and threw up the mountains and made the hills and the valleys of this wonderful world of ours. If this internal melted mass burnt out and cooled very quickly, it became granite. That which cooled less quickly became silver, and less quickly again gold. And after gold, diamonds were made, said the old priest. A diamond is a congealed drop of sunlight. This is a scientific truth also. You all know that a diamond is pure carbon, actually deposited sunlight. And he said another thing I would not forget. 
He declared that a diamond is the last and highest of God's mineral creations, as a woman is the last and highest of God's animal creations. I suppose that is the reason why the two have such a liking for each other. And the old priest told Ali Hafed that if he had a handful of diamonds, he could purchase a whole country. And with a mine of diamonds, he could place his children upon thrones through their influence of their great wealth. Ali Hafed heard all about diamonds and how much they were worth, and went to his bed that night a poor man. Not that he had lost anything, but poor because he was discontented, and discontented because he thought he was poor. He said, I want a mine of diamonds. So he lay awake all night, and early in the morning sought out the priest. Now I know from experience that a priest, when awakened early in the morning, is cross. He awoke that priest out of his dreams and said to him, Will you tell me where I can find diamonds? The priest said, Diamonds? What do you want with diamonds? I want to be immensely rich, said Ali Hafed, but I don't know where to go. Well, said the priest, if you will find a river that runs over white sand between high mountains, in those sands you will always see diamonds. Do you really believe there is such a river? Plenty of them, plenty of them. All you have to do is just go find them. Then you will have them. Ali Hafed said, I will go. So he sold his farm, collected his money at interest, left his family in the charge of a neighbor, and away he went in search of diamonds. He began very properly, to my mind, at the mountains of the moon. Afterwards, he went around into Palestine, then wandered on into Europe, and at last, when his money was all spent and he was in rags, wretchedness and poverty, he stood on the shore of that bay in Barcelona, Spain. When a tidal wave came rolling in through the pillars of Hercules, and the poor, afflicted, suffering man could not resist the awful temptation to cast himself into that incoming tide, and he sank beneath its foaming crest, never to rise to life again. When that old guide had told me that very sad story, he stopped the camel I was riding and went back to fix the baggage on one of the other camels. And I remember thinking to myself, why did he reserve that particular story for his particular friends? There seemed to be no beginning, middle, or end, nothing to it. That was the first story I ever heard told or read in which the hero was killed in the first chapter. I had but one chapter of that story, and the hero was dead. When the guide came back and took up the halter of my camel again, he went right on with the same story. He said that Ali Hafed's successor led his camel out into the garden to drink, and as that camel put its nose down into the clear water of the garden brook, Ali Hafed's successor noticed a curious flash of light from the sands of the shallow stream. And reaching in, he pulled out a black stone, having an eye of light that reflected all the colors of the rainbow. And he took that curious pebble into the house and left it on the mantel, then went on his way and forgot all about it. A few days after that, this same old priest, who had told Ali Hafed how diamonds were made, came in to visit his successor. When he saw that flash of light from the mantel, he rushed up and said, Here is a diamond, here is a diamond. Has Ali Hafed returned? No, no, Ali Hafed has not returned, and this is not a diamond. That is nothing but a stone. We found it right out here in our garden. But I know a diamond when I see it, said he. That is a diamond. Then together they rushed to the garden and stirred up the white sands with their fingers, 
and found others more beautiful, more valuable diamonds than the first. And thus, said the guide to me, were discovered the diamond mines of Golconda, the most magnificent diamond mines in all the history of mankind, exceeding the Kimberley in its value. The great Konur diamond in England's crown jewels, and the largest crown diamond on earth in Russia's crown jewels, which I often had hoped she would have to sell before they made peace with Japan, came from that mine. And when the old guide had called my attention to that wonderful discovery, he took his Turkish cap off his head again and swung it around in the air to call my attention to the moral. Those Arab guides have a moral to each story, though the stories are not always moral. He said, had Ali Hafed remained at home and dug in his own cellar or in his own garden, instead of wretchedness, starvation, poverty and death in a strange land, he would have had access to acres of diamonds. For every acre, yes, every shovelful of that old farm afterwards revealed the gems which since have decorated the crowns of monarchs. When he had given the moral to his story, I saw why he had reserved this story for his particular friends. I didn't tell him I could see it. I was not going to tell that old Arab that I could see it. For it was that mean old Arab's way of going around such a thing like a lawyer and saying indirectly what he did not dare say directly. That there was a certain young man that day traveling down the Tigris River that might be better off home in America. I didn't tell him I could see it. I told him his story reminded me of one, and I told it to him quick. I told him about that man out in California who in 1847 owned a ranch out there. He read that gold had been discovered in Southern California, and he sold his ranch to Colonel Sutter and started off to hunt for gold. Colonel Sutter put a mill on the little stream in that farm, and one day his little girl brought some wet sand from the raceway of the mill into the house and placed it before the fire to dry. And as that sand started falling through the little girl's fingers, a visitor saw the first shining scales of real gold that were ever discovered in California. And the man who wanted the gold had sold his ranch and gone away never to return. I discovered this lecture two years ago in California, in the city that stands near that farm. And they told me that mine is not exhausted yet, and that a one-third owner of that farm has been getting, during these recent years, $20 of gold every 15 minutes of his life, sleeping or waking. Why, you and I would enjoy an income like that. But the best illustration that I have now of this thought was found here in Pennsylvania. There was a man living in Pennsylvania who owned a farm, and he did what I should do if I had a farm. He sold it. But before he sold it, he concluded to secure employment, collecting coal oil for his cousin in Canada. They first discovered coal oil there. So this farmer in Pennsylvania decided that he would apply for a position with his cousin in Canada. Now you see, the farmer was not altogether a foolish man. He did not leave his farm until he had something else to do. Of all the simpletons the stars shine on, there is none more foolish than a man who leaves one job before he has obtained another. And that has a special reference to gentlemen of my profession, and has no reference to a man seeking a divorce. So I say this, old farmer did not leave one job until he had obtained another. He wrote to Canada, but his cousin replied that he could not engage him because he did not know anything about the oil business. Well then, he said he, I will understand it. 
So he set himself at the study of the whole subject. He began at the second day of creation. He studied the subject from the primitive vegetation to the coal oil stage until he knew all about it. Then he wrote to his cousin and said, Now I understand the oil business. And his cousin replied to him, All right then, come on. That man, by the record of the county, sold his farm for $833, even money, no cents. He had scarcely gone from that farm before the man who purchased it went out to arrange for watering the cattle, and he found that the previous owner had arranged the matter very nicely. There is a stream running down the hillside there, and the previous owner had gone out and put a plank across that stream at an angle, extending across the brook and down edgewise a few inches under the surface of the water. The purpose of the plank across that brook was to throw over to the other bank a dreadful-looking scum through which the cattle would not put their noses to drink above the plank, although they would drink the water on one side of it below it. Thus the man who had gone to Canada had been himself damming back for 23 years a flow of coal oil which the state geologist of Pennsylvania declared officially as early as 1870 was then worth to our state a hundred million dollars. The city of Titusville now stands on that farm and those Pleasantville wells flow on. And that farmer who had studied all about the formation of oil since the second day of God's creation, clear down to the present time, sold that farm for $833, no cents. And again, I say, no S-E-N-S-E, sense. But I need another illustration, and I found that in Massachusetts. And I'm sorry I did, because that is my old state. This young man I mentioned went out of the state to study, went down to Yale College, and studied mines and mining. They paid him $15 a week during his last year for training students who were behind their classes in mineralogy, out of hours, of course, while pursuing his own studies. But when he graduated, they raised his pay from $15 to $45 and offered him a professorship. Then he went straight home to his mother and said, Mother, I won't work for $45 a week. What is $45 a week for a man with a brain like mine? Mother, let's go out to California and stake out gold claims and be immensely rich. Now, said his mother, It is just as well to be happy as it is to be rich. But as he was her only son, he had his way. They always do. And they sold out in Massachusetts, and they went to Wisconsin, where he went into the employ of the Superior Copper Mining Company. And he was lost from sight in the employ of that company at $15 a week. He was also to have an interest in any mines that he should discover for that company. But I do not believe that he has ever discovered a mine. I do not know anything about it, but I do not believe he has. I know he had scarcely gone from the old homestead before the farmer who had bought his homestead went out to dig potatoes, and he was bringing them in in a large basket through the front gateway. The ends of the stone wall came so near together at the gate that the basket hugged very tight. So he set the basket on the ground and pulled, first on one side, then on the other. Our farms in Massachusetts are mostly stone walls, and the farmers have to be economical with their gateways in order to have some place to put the stones. That basket hugged so tight there that as he was hauling it through, 
he noticed in the upper stone next the gate a block of native silver, eight inches square. And this professor of mines and mining and mineralogy, who would not work for $45 a week when he sold that homestead in Massachusetts, sat right on that stone to make the bargain. He was brought up there. He had gone back and forth by that piece of silver, rubbed it with his sleeve, and it seemed to say, come now, now, now. Here is $100,000. Why not take me? But he would not take it. There was no silver in Newburyport. It was all a way off. Well, I don't know where. He didn't, but somewhere else. And he was a professor of mineralogy. I do not know of anything I would enjoy better than to take the whole time telling stories of blunders like that I have heard professors make. Yet I wish I knew what that man is doing out there in Wisconsin. I can imagine him out there as he sits by his fireside and he is saying to his friends, Do you know that man Conwell that lives in Philadelphia? Oh yes, I've heard of him. And do you know that man Jones that lives in that city? Yes, I've heard of him. And then he begins to laugh and laugh and says to his friends, they have done the same thing I did precisely. And that spoils the whole joke, because you and I have done it. Ninety out of every hundred people here have made that mistake this very day. I say you ought to be rich. You ought to have no right to be poor. To live in Philadelphia and not be rich is a misfortune, and is a double misfortune, because you could have been rich just as well as be poor. Philadelphia furnishes so many opportunities. You ought to be rich. But persons with certain religious prejudice will ask, how can you spend your time advising the rising generation to give their time to getting money, dollars and cents? The commercial spirit? Yet I must say that you ought to spend time getting rich. You and I know that there are some things more valuable than money. Of course we do. Ah, yes, by a heart made unspeakably sad by a grave, on which the autumn leaves now fall. I know there are some things higher and grander and sublimer than money. Well, does the man know who has suffered that there are some things sweeter and holier and more sacred than gold? Nevertheless, the man of common sense also knows that there is not any one of these things that is not greatly enhanced by the use of money. Money is power. Love is the grandest thing on God's earth but fortunate the lover who has plenty of money. Money is power. Money has powers. And for a man to say, I do not want money, is to say, I do not wish to do any good to my fellow men. It is absurd thus to talk. It is absurd to disconnect them. This is a wonderfully great life, and you ought to spend your time getting money because of the power there is in money. And yet this religious prejudice is so great that some people think it is a great honor to be one of God's poor. I am looking in the faces of people who think just that way. I heard a man once say in a prayer meeting that he was thankful that he was one of God's poor. And then I silently wondered what his wife would say to that speech as she took in washing to support the man while he sat and smoked on the veranda. I don't want to see any more of that kind of God's poor. Now, when a man could have been rich just as well, and he is now weak because he is poor, he has done some great wrong. He has been untruthful to himself. He has been unkind to his fellow men. We ought to get rich if we can by honorable and Christian methods, and these are the only methods that sweep us quickly toward the goal of riches. I remember not many years ago, 
a young theological student who came into my office and said to me that he thought it was his duty to come in and labor with me. I asked him what had happened, and he said, I feel it is my duty to come in and speak to you, sir, and say that the Holy Scriptures declare that money is the root of all evil. I asked him where he found that saying, and he said he found it in the Bible. I asked him whether he had made a new Bible, and he said no. He had not gotten a new Bible, and that it was in the old Bible. Well, I said, if it is in my Bible, I never saw it. Will you please get the textbook and let me see it? He left the room and soon came stalking in with his Bible open, and with all the bigoted pride of the narrow sectarian, who found his creed on some misinterpretation of Scripture, and he puts the Bible down on the table before me and fairly squealed into my ear, There it is. You can read it for yourself. And I said to him, Young man, you will learn when you get a little older that you cannot trust another denomination to read the Bible for you. Now you belong to another denomination. Please read it to me. And remember that you are taught in a school where emphasis is exegesis. So he took the Bible and read it. The love of money is the root of all evil. Then he had it right. The great book has come back into esteem and love of the people and into the retrospect of the greatest minds on earth. And now you can quote it and rest your life and your death on it without more fear. So when he quoted right from the scriptures, he quoted the truth. The love of money is the root of all evil. Oh, that is it. It is the worship of the means instead of the end. Though you cannot reach the end without the means. When a man makes an idol of the money instead of the purposes for which it may be used, when he squeezes the dollar until the eagle squeals, then it is made the root of all evil. Think, if you only had the money, what could you do for your wife, your child, for your home, and for your city? Think how soon you could endow the temple college yonder if you only had the money and the disposition to give it. And yet, my friend, people say you and I should not spend the time getting rich. How inconsistent the whole thing is. We ought to be rich because money has power. I think the best thing for me to do is to illustrate this. For if I say you ought to get rich, I ought at least to suggest how it is done. We get a prejudice against rich men because of the lies that are told about them. The lies that are told about Mr. Rockefeller because he has $200 million. So many believe them. Yet how false is the representation of that man to the world? How little we can tell what is true nowadays when newspapers try to sell their papers entirely on some sensation. The way they lie about the rich man is something terrible. And I do not know that there is anything to illustrate this better than what the newspapers now say about the city of Philadelphia. A young man came to me the other day and said, If Mr. Rockefeller, as you think, is a good man, why is it that everybody says so much against him? Is it because he's gotten ahead of us? That is the whole of it? Just gotten ahead of us? Why is it Mr. Carnegie is criticized so sharply by an envious world? Because he's gotten more than we have? If a man knows more than I know, don't I incline to criticize somewhat his learning? Let a man stand in a pulpit and preach to thousands. And if I have 15 people in my church and they're all asleep, don't I criticize him? We always do that to the man who gets ahead of us. Why, the man you are criticizing has 100 million and you have 50 cents. And both of you have just what you are worth. One of the richest men in this country came to my home and sat down in my parlor and said, Did you see all those lies about my family in the papers? Certainly I did. 
I knew there were lies when I saw them. Why do they lie about me the way they do? Well, I said to him, If you will give me your check for a hundred million, I will take all the lies along with it. Well, said he, I don't see any sense in their thus talking about my family and myself. Conwell, tell me frankly, what do you think the American people think of me? Well, said I, they think you are the blackest-hearted villain that ever trod the soil. But what can I do about it? There is nothing he can do about it, and yet he is one of the sweetest Christian men I ever knew. If you get a hundred million dollars, you will have the lies. You will be lied about. And you can judge your success in any line by the lies that are told about you. I say that you ought to be rich. A.T. Stewart, the great princely merchant of New York, the richest man in America in his time, was a poor boy. He had a dollar and a half and went into the mercantile business. But he lost 87 and a half cents of his first dollar because he bought some needles and thread and buttons to sell, which people didn't want. Are you poor? It is because you are not wanted and are left on your own hands. There was the greatest lesson. Apply it whichever way you will. It comes to every single person's life, young or old. He did not know what people needed and consequently bought something they didn't want and had the goods left on his hands at dead loss. A.T. Stewart learned that there was a great lesson of his mercantile life and said, I will never buy anything more until I first learn what the people want. Then I'll make the purchase. He went around to the doors and asked them what they did want. And when he found out what they wanted, he invested his 62 and a half cents and began to supply a known demand. I care not what your profession or occupation in life may be. I care not whether you are a lawyer, a doctor, a housekeeper, a teacher, or whatever else. The principle is precisely the same. We must know what the world needs first and then invest ourselves to supply that need. And success is almost certain. A.T. Stewart went on until he was worth $40 million. Well, you say, a man can do that in New York, but cannot do it here in Philadelphia. The statistics very carefully gathered in New York in 1889 showed 107 millionaires in the city worth over $10 million apiece. It was remarkable, and people think they must go there to get rich. Out of that 107 millionaires, only seven of them made their money in New York, and the others moved to New York after their fortunes were made. And 67 out of the remaining 100 made their fortunes in towns of less than 6,000 people. And the richest man in the country at that time lived in a town of 3,500 inhabitants, and always lived there and never moved away. It is not so much where you are as what you are. But at the same time, if the largeness of the city comes into the problem, then remember it is the smaller city that furnishes the great opportunity to make the millions of money. The best illustration that I can give is to reference John Jacob Astor, who was a poor boy who made all the money of the Astor family. He made more than his successors have ever earned, and yet he once held a mortgage on a millinery store in New York. And because the people could not make enough money to pay the interest and rent, he foreclosed the mortgage and took possession of the store and went into a partnership with the man who had failed. He kept the same stock, did not give them a dollar of capital, and he left them alone and went out and sat down upon a bench in the park. Out there on that bench in the park, he had the most important, and to my mind, the pleasantest part of that partnership business. 
He was watching the ladies as they went by. And where is the man that wouldn't get rich at that business? But when John Jacob Astor saw a lady pass, with her shoulders back and her head up, as if she did not care if the whole world looked on her, he studied her bonnet, and before the bonnet was out of sight, he knew the shape of the frame, the color of the trimmings, and everything there was to know about that bonnet. Sometimes I try to describe a woman's bonnet, but it's of little use, for it would be out of style tomorrow night. So John Jacob Astor went to the store and said, Now, put in the show window just such a bonnet as I described to you, because, said he, I have seen just a lady who likes just such a bonnet. Do not make up any more till I come back. And he went out again and sat on that bench in the park. And another lady of a different form and complexion passed him with a bonnet of a different shape and color, of course. Now, said he, put such a bonnet as that in the show window. He didn't fill a show window with hats and bonnets, which drive people away, and then sit in the back of the store and bawl because the people go somewhere else to trade. He didn't put a hat or a bonnet in that show window, the like of which he had not seen before it was made up. Suppose I were to go down through this audience and ask you to introduce me to the great inventors who live in Philadelphia. The inventors of Philadelphia would say, why, we don't have any in Philadelphia. It is too slow to invent anything. But you do have just as great inventors. And they are here in this audience as ever invented a machine. But the probability is that the greatest inventor to benefit the world with his discovery is some person, perhaps some lady, who thinks she could not invent anything at all. Did you ever study the history of invention and see how strange it was that the man who made the greatest discovery did it without any previous idea that he was an inventor? Who are the great inventors? They are the persons with plain, straightforward common sense who saw a need in the world and immediately applied themselves to supply that need. If you want to invent anything, don't try to find it in the wheels in your head, nor the wheels in your machine, but first find out what the people need, and then apply yourself to that need. And this leads to invention on the part of people who would not dream of before. The great inventors are simply great men and women. The greater the person, the more simple the person, and the more simple the machine, the more valuable it is. Oh, I learned the lesson then that I will never forget so long as the tongue of the bell of time continues to swing for me. Greatness consists not in the holding of some future office, but really consists in doing great deeds with little means and the accomplishment of vast purposes from the private ranks of life. To be great at all, one must be great here, right now, in Philadelphia. He who can give to this city better streets and better sidewalks, better schools and more colleges, more happiness and more civilization, more of God, he will be great anywhere. Let every man or woman here, if you never hear me again, remember this, that if you wish to be great at all, you must begin where you are and what you are, in Philadelphia, right now. He that can give to this city any blessing, he who can be a good citizen while he lives here, he that can make better homes, he that can be a blessing whether he works in the shop or sits behind the counter or keeps house. Whatever be his life, he who would be great anywhere must first be great in his own Philadelphia. Wow, just reading that story fires me up. For those of you who have been coming to our seminars and you're part of our coaching program on how to grow your business and work by referral, 
I think when you hear the story of the Acres of Diamonds, you realize that everything I teach and every how-to I've developed and every system we've built rests upon the principle of Acres of Diamonds. When we talk about working your database and building your relationships and building your fortune that way, it's all based on the premise of Acres of Diamonds. Now, I didn't cover the whole of this little book. That's for you to do on your own. But here's what I got from this book when I first read it, and here's what I got reminded of today. First, where are your acres of diamonds? The answer is right beneath your feet and right now. Second, what need exists in the marketplace that you can uniquely fill to build your fortune? Third, a hundred years ago, people thought the American dream had run its course, just like a bunch of people believe that today. These principles are true, and they'll be true 100 years from today. So the fact of the matter is, the American dream is alive and well. I personally believe there will be five times the number of millionaires in the next 50 years than there were in the last. Number four, start with where you are and with what you have. You know, the stories in that book are true. The mine that Ali Hafed sold was the Golconda Diamond Mines, which did produce the crown jewels of England, Russia, Iran. The famous Hope Diamond in the Smithsonian came from that. The Sutter Gold Mine, Pennsylvania oil fields, a silver mine in Massachusetts. You know, John Jacob Astor's story was relayed to a man named John Wanamaker. John Wanamaker and Russell Conwell became lifelong friends. John Wanamaker is the man who developed the modern department store and became an, an enormously successful man right there in Pennsylvania. Russell Conwell himself, they call him the penniless millionaire. He did make a fortune. He talked about being rich. It's uncomfortable when he says it. I'm reading, and it's like, become rich. I was like, it kind of, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, you know what Russell Conwell did? From his 6,150 speeches, now I've given 2,000 speeches, and I've been at it 20-plus years, almost 25 years. 6,150 speeches he gave, and every single dime he took, he gave. He was the founder of Temple University right there in Philadelphia. He gave millions and millions of dollars away. You know, in this podcast, we always talk about people who've been there and done that. This is a man who lived what he believed. His best friends were the most successful Americans at the time. You'll hear him talking about what's true today is true then, that when you become hugely successful, you're going to get some criticism. It happens. But be rich anyway. Be successful anyway. And anyone listening to me today, it is right underneath your nose. And you don't have to go away and do some extraordinary thing. All of these examples he gave were people who were ambitious, people who wanted to go for it, but they thought they had to do this extraordinary out-of-body thing. And yet underneath their nose, right in front of them, was everything they needed. At Buffini & Company, we coach our clients that everything they need comes from who they already know. Serving and exceeding their customers' expectations, asking for referrals. It's why our average client comes to us making $30,000 a year, and within a couple of years is making, on average, $360,000 a year. We have 20,000 small businesses we coach. We have trained 3 million people in 37 countries. I have applied the Acres of Diamonds philosophy to a specific mindset of how to develop referrals for anyone who runs a service business. Diamonds are forever, and so are these timeless principles. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I certainly did. I'm going to listen to this one over and over again. I hope you leave a review to tell us what you think, and I hope you'll share this podcast with your friends who are in need of uncovering their own diamonds. 
And I'll leave you with the immortal words of my grandfather, a jewel of a man who always said, May the rose rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you and all your diamonds in the hollow of his hand. Oh, 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 oh,